During my years in East Belfast, I spent a considerable amount of time working beyond uh, Kirkpatrick Memorial, the place where I was a minister. Uh, sometimes I served in the, the central boards and councils of our church. Uh, in the latter years of my time there, I was serving on a, an exotically named Belfast Conference. The Belfast Conference was established a few years ago, uh, a place where we could talk about the, the situation in Belfast, representatives of the three Belfast presbyteries gathering to talk about the, the future of Presbyterianism in the city. The truth is, Presbyterianism in Belfast is really struggling. Many congregations uh, throughout the city are in serious decline. Uh, a, a number of them are in life support, just waiting for the moment when somebody will uh, twin them with another congregation or pull the plug entirely. Even in the East Belfast, which I think is, is the strongest of the, the three Belfast presbyteries numerically, we were shrinking fast. When I went to East Belfast in 2003, the statistics tell me that there were 10,481 families connected with Presbyterian churches in that presbytery. By 2021, that number had dropped to 6,171, a drop of 41% in 18 years. That's sobering stuff. And the decline over the same period in the Ards Presbytery, while it's not quite so precipitous, it's alarming nonetheless. An honest analysis of, of this kind of a situation brings us to a difficult conclusion, and that is that church doesn't seem to be working. At least our expression of church isn't working in the same way that it did in the past. In these early years of the third millennium, we're not succeeding in ways that we were in previous centuries. <clears throat> Once you take away the sense of obligation that there once was in a culture like ours, that obligation that previous generations felt about church going. People seem to get over their church going habit pretty quickly. We've seen that with the pandemic. We find that many individuals and families don't want to come back. They don't miss church. Previous generations came to churches for all sorts of things, some of them good things, others more trivial. Uh, sometimes I summarize it under the, the two Bs. We, we came to church in the old days for badminton and bowls. It was many more things other than that, but you know what I mean when I say that. But people don't come for those reasons anymore. They don't play badminton or bowls or, or they do it somewhere else. And quite frankly, there's nothing going on in many of our churches that they want to be a part of. I wonder how you find yourself responding to that reality. A, a number of us, I'm going to guess probably even a majority of us in a gathering like this, have grown up with a sense that people should go to church. But we're seeing that, that the culture no longer shares that conviction. 
People don't seem to want to go to church and they don't seem to feel any sense of obligation that they should go if they don't want to. And this throws up a massive challenge for us. I'm sure you see it. How on earth will we ever reach a generation like that? How will we reach them for Jesus Christ? Well, this situation where there is no culture of church going, where there's no social pressure to be part of the people of God, while it feels very unsettling for us and, and probably new for some of us, maybe the first time in our lives that we have felt this way, it's actually a very typical position for the people of God throughout history and for God's people now in many other parts of the world. We're in a position not unlike the early Christians of the Roman Empire shortly after Christ. We're in a position not unlike modern believers in Syria or Afghanistan. But we're also in a position not unlike the people of God under Moses about to enter the promised land. These people were reading about and learning about in this book of Deuteronomy. When these people go into the land, there isn't going to be a culture of church going there. There isn't a community in Canaan waiting to say, we were dying to hear about your God. So what's the biblical answer to this conundrum? How does God expect us to deal with this state of affairs? He does so by calling a people to be his very own. God always intended that his people living the life that he calls them to would be able to attract a non-Christian, not church-going world to him. This is what he made us for. This is our calling. He wants us to choose life and to choose our calling, which is to put his life on display before a watching world. That's what we're going to be thinking about here this morning. Choose your calling. Let me remind you very quickly of the journey that we've made in Deuteronomy so far. In an opening sermon a couple of weeks ago, I introduced the book to you. I showed you that this is Moses' great sermon, the last that he gave to the people of Israel before he said farewell to them and sent them off into the promised land. I took you that morning to, towards the end of the book to Moses' dramatic conclusion in chapter 30, where he sums up his teaching with this invitation. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your family may live. Last week, Noble helped us to grasp a little of how, how Moses started his teaching in this book as we looked at chapters one to three together. Moses invited the people really to look backwards in order to help them choose a better future. As he, he recalled with them the rebellion in the wilderness, he called them to remember God's faithfulness despite their faithlessness. In effect, he was reminding them of times when the chosen death so that they might do differently this time and choose life, choose your future. This morning, we're going to look together at this passage which Raymond has read for us. We're going to look at the whole of chapter 4. 
and we're going to see Moses' invitation to choose your calling. By the way, I just want to remind you of something I said a couple of weeks ago. When we are going to preach a book like Deuteronomy, we can't preach it verse by verse. So I'm inviting you to try and read along, if you like, read along at home. So back then I invited you to read the first three chapters. This morning we're going to look at chapter four. For next week, just if you remember this, try and read chapter five for next week. Okay. I'm going to give you a quick overview of chapter four before we zoom in and focus on verses five to eight. Moses begins this section of his sermon by inviting the people to keep God's law. Look at verse 1. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live. If you you keep looking at the text, you'll, you'll notice that there's a strong emphasis here on God's law. Hear God's law. Follow it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. We're going to be thinking a good deal about God's law in this book of Deuteronomy, and particularly next week. Notice now Moses' invitation regarding God's law again in verse 1. So that you might find life. Look out for that refrain in Deuteronomy. As Moses puts God's law before the people, as he commands them to walk in God's ways, he'll often motivate them with this phrase, so that you might find life. Moses is inviting these people to choose life. He continues verses 3 and 4. If we had time, we could go and look at that incident, but the function it has in this chapter, he reminds them of an occasion when they didn't obey God's law and they chose death instead of life. Our focus this morning is going to fall on verses 5 to 8, so jump with me for now to verse 9 and following. In a chapter where Moses is inviting the people to obey God's law, he reminds them of how it was given. Look at verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai. Look at verse 13. Remember how God declared to you this covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you're to follow in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. This old man, he's preaching his last ever sermon for the people of Israel as they're on the border waiting to enter the promised land. And he's continuing to do what he did all his life. He brings them God's word and he calls them to live faithful to it. We can summarize most of the remaining content of this part of Moses' sermon by noticing how he elaborates on the first two commandments. A couple more minutes on this. He begins with the second commandment. The NIV tells us with that title over verse 15, idolatry is forbidden. That's quite right. Look at verse 15. He still has them on the the slopes of Mount Sinai. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt 
and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. He's re-articulating the second commandment. Maybe you remember it from Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Moses is taking a younger generation of Israelites. They weren't at Sinai. He's taking them back the the bulk of 40 years. And, And he's letting God's law land with them. I said we'd summarize these largest chunks of the chapter by noticing how they relate to the first two commandments. The NIV heading at verse 32 The Lord is God introduces a section down to verse 40 where Moses re-articulates the first commandment. Do you remember it? From Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Moses reminds the people here, gives them reason why they should have no other gods before Yahweh. Verse 32, he reminds them of God's goodness in creation. He reminds them, verses 33 and 34, of God's grace in election, his choice of Israel as a people of his very own. But he reminds them of these twin realities to reinforce the absolute uniqueness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Look at verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. Okay. With that quick survey of chapter 4, we're beginning to get a bit of a handle on what Moses is doing here. He's inviting the people back to Sinai and back to God's law. He's calling them to do what their parents failed to do, and that's to be faithful to the living God. Look, Look at a summary of this short section, verse 40. That you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives gives you for all time. Obey the law and thereby choose life. The law leads you into life. This book of Deuteronomy gives a lot of time to the law and how it leads to life. We're going to be thinking about that more in the weeks to come. I'd like to, forgive me for taking a bit of time, I just wanted you to understand how chapter 4 works. But I want now to take the second half of our time going, going much deeper and thinking together about our calling. In a very rich section of chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, Moses gives us a glimpse of what's behind all of this why the Lord would give his people the law. He gives us a glimpse of what God's calling his people to do and to be. Let's notice how this works. Verse 5. See, Moses says, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Are you sure, Moses? Why are you so into the law? We're the New Testament people of God. We're saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, what purpose could the law possibly have for us? And then we're offered our answer, verse 6, which shows us the part that God's law plays in our calling. Moses says, for this this way of life, this law, will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who'll hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Let's take a few moments to understand what's going on here. When God's people obey God's law, when God's people walk in God's ways, something happens. It's something that other people see. It shows our wisdom and understanding to the nations that people around us can see that. They also get to hear about it. Verse 6, surely this nation is a great and wise and understanding people. Moses is reminding Israel now of their calling, of God's purpose for them. They're to put the life of God on display for a watching world. It's the same now as it was then. When a person claims to be a Christian, when a community takes on the name of Jesus Christ, people see us. People hear about us. They know what people in Bangor are saying about us. We're on display before a watching world. Chris Wright says the people of God are an open book to the world. The world asks its questions and draws its conclusions based on what it sees. Last week, I visited a church in Glasgow as we were leaving Patrick, our son, to university for the first time. And I heard a lovely story of God using his people to draw others to Christ. What I loved about this story was its simplicity and its everydayness. I don't think I've ever heard a simpler story. Teenage boy who didn't know Jesus had gone along to a Christian camp. And he was struck immediately by the welcome he received. The other kids at this camp, even the ones who weren't his friends, welcomed him and made him their friend. Even the cool ones welcomed him. And he wasn't used to that. He was a bit overweight, the kind of kid that everybody left to the side. The welcome he received at that camp served as a, as a start of a journey to come and to know Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? Christians actually doing the things that God calls us to do, in this case, loving a stranger. And God uses it for his glory. Let me talk for a moment to our teenagers. Uh, By the way, I love that I'm seeing more and more of our teenagers staying in our church services, moving out then later on to go and catch up together at Connect Plus. We, we love having you here. It's, it's great that you're here. I want to talk for you a second. Schools can be really tough 
places. You don't need me to tell you that. Many of you know it because you've experienced it. You know what it's like to, to be left out, to, to feel like you're the one who has no friends. Now, think with me for a second about this. What kind of a difference could we make if we lived out our calling? Your calling. Jesus tells us to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. I'm thinking about the neighbor part of that command. And and I'm thinking about loving our neighbors in school. I'm thinking about the guys in our class. Can you imagine setting aside for once and for all the idea that you'll only connect with your friends or, or that you'll only hang around with the cool crowd if they'll let you in? Can you imagine with Jesus' help saying, I'm going to welcome anyone, particularly the one who has no other friends. I'm going to be a friend to anyone and make them a part of my group. Wouldn't that be quite something? Imagine if all the Christians in our schools started to live that way. Imagine what that would do for Jesus' reputation in Bangor Grammar and then the Academy and then Lola and Regent House, all those other schools. Choose your calling. Put the life of Christ on display for a watching world. When I was preparing, I thought I'd speak only to the teenagers about that, but I felt an impulse to to talk to grown-ups too. This isn't just a teenage issue, is it? We form our cliques. We draw ranks. We leave other people out in the cold. It happens right here in the church. I see it. We get comfortable with the friends that we already have and the relationships that suit us. And when we do that, the church fails to be the church. It becomes just like any other voluntary organization. It's the golf club. It's the the walking group. It's nothing different. It's just a club where we gather on Sundays and sing songs together. Those who are in, stay in, and those who are out, stay out. Can you imagine what the church would be like if we actually obeyed Jesus and lived out our calling? Give any visitor the kind of welcome that we'd like to receive. Drew outsiders in, drew those from the fringe right to the center. Can you imagine if we weren't just polite to each other, but invited each other into our groups and into our lives? I can't imagine that, actually. Very easily. Because I already see glimpses of it. All I want is more. All I want is for that kind of a welcome to characterize us entirely. Choose your calling. Choose to put the life of God on display for a watching world.
Moses reminded the people in verse 6 of their calling there to put God's beauty on display for a watching world. In verses 7 and 8, he tells them what, what might happen if they do that. He has, he has the nations around Israel asking two rhetorical questions. It's very interesting. These two questions focus on the twin pillars of the law, the, the pillars of life with God. Have a look with me. The first question, verse 7. The, the nations are asking of Israel, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way that the Lord our God is near us? whenever we pray to him. This one's about our life with God. Those who've come to trust in the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, we have a life that our neighbors simply don't have. Do, do, we take that for granted, but please don't. We have the life of God. We relate day and daily to our Father. We have a nearness with God, an intimacy with God. People who encounter that and really see it, they say to themselves, wow, I've never seen the like of that. What might, I was thinking about this a little bit, what, what might a non-Christian neighbor or colleague see? Maybe it's that sense of purpose that we have from knowing our creator as our father, unshaken by pandemics and cost of living crises. Maybe it's the non-judgmental posture that we bring into public life as those who know how much we've been forgiven. Maybe it's the peace that we show under pressure because the Spirit of God's at work in us, growing fruit in our lives. Wow, our colleagues say, even if they don't say it out loud, we've never seen the like of, of this guy or this girl. This, this person really seems to have a relationship with the living God. But that's not the whole story, says Moses. If you choose to live out your God-given calling, then the world won't only see your, your life with God, your spirituality. The, the world will also see the life you share together. A rich type of community. Maybe this is less obvious. Look with me at verse 8. Moses tells the people of a time when their neighbors are asking, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws I'm setting before you today. I don't think the nations are excited about something they see on paper when it talks here about the decrees and laws. What the nations are excited about in Israel is the quality of life that emerges as they live as God has called them to live. A community where people love one another, where the vulnerable are cared for, all these things that we're going to learn about in these weeks ahead. Wow, say their neighbors. We've never seen the like of this. The quality of life that these, these people share together, their relationships with one another, I'd, I'd love to be part of that. How do I get in? Am I allowed? Can, can I come to church with you on Sunday?
Folks, we've been thinking today about God's law and we've seen that it's a call to life. We've seen that to live by God's law is to fulfill our calling, to show the life of God to the world. We're learning this morning how to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, the same Jesus that set us free from the curse of the law, from trying to use the law to gain favor with God, he's the God who says, I I never came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, show you how to live it. Show us how a human being can choose to obey their calling as they obey God's law. Like a new Moses, he invites us to choose our calling too. How is it he summarizes it? He summarizes it talking about love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, friends, this in the end is what people want from churches. Not bowls and badminton and all that other stuff. They want a place where they can draw near and learn of the love of God and learn to love God. They want a place that they can come to where they will be loved and will they'll be taught to love their neighbor as themselves. Choose life. Choose your calling. Let's pray.